this morning, Psalm 24 from the Old Testament, and then we'll be reading our text, Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 to 23, as we consider the theme this morning, Christ, the only Redeemer. So let's first look at Psalm 24, and then we'll move to our text this morning. I read this psalm, consider the ascension and the exaltation of our Lord Jesus Christ as rising up into heaven to sit at God's right hand. Psalm 24. Psalm of David. The earth is the Lord's in all its fullness, the world and those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the waters. Who may ascend into the hill of the Lord? Or who may stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who has not lifted up his soul to an idol, nor sworn deceitfully, he shall receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. This is Jacob, the generation of those who seek him. Who seek your face, Selah. Lift up your heads, O you gates, and be lifted up, you everlasting doors, and the King of glory shall come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O you gates, lift up, you everlasting doors, and the King of glory shall come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts, he is the King of glory, Selah. Turn now to Colossians chapter 1. I'll be reading beginning at verse 15. He that is Christ is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things consist. He is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have the preeminence. For it pleased the Father that in him all the fullness should dwell, and by him to reconcile all things to himself, by him, whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of his cross. And you who once were alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now he has reconciled in the body of his flesh through death, present you holy and blameless and above reproach, in his sight. If indeed you continue in the faith, grounded and steadfast, and are not moved away from the hope of the gospel which you heard, which was preached to every creature under heaven, of which I, Paul, became a minister. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Let's pray. O gracious God and Father, we lift our hearts up to you 
the living and true God this morning, and we thank you, O Lord, that our Redeemer is the only Redeemer of your elect, the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that he is the image and the reflection of all that you are in your divine being and in all your perfections, and that he has manifested to us your great love for us in the gospel, that he has manifested to us a love that is before us and even before all worlds, a love that has come down to us in our human flesh, in the incarnation, and has manifested to us your heart toward us from all eternity. We thank you that even when we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And we thank you that he died for us really and truly in our own flesh, that we might call him our great elder brother, our kinsman, Redeemer. Oh Lord, we pray that this morning as we consider the greatness and the magnitude and the glory of the person and work of our Savior, Jesus Christ, that you would renew our hearts in joy and thankfulness, in love and in hope. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Have you ever considered what it means to be fed and spiritually satisfied by the preaching of the Word on the Lord's Day? I spoke about this a bit during our Sunday school time this morning. Sometimes when people have complaints about preaching, they'll summarize their complaints by saying these words, I'm just not being fed. I'm just not being fed. And what a tragedy when that complaint is actually true. Sometimes that phrase is used when there's no objective basis for using it. One of the things I tried to lay out this morning in the Sunday school class was what it means objectively for the word to actually be be preached. It's not our preferences to dictate whether or not we're being fed, but it's whether or not the word is being preached basically and Christ is being set forth. Sometimes it's used, this phrase, I'm just not being fed, it's sometimes used as an easy way to leave a church without dealing personally and responsibly with the actual reasons that a member or a family is leaving the church. One thing is certain. Faithful preaching needs to be preaching that feeds the flock of Christ. It's not faithful if it's not. And what kind of preaching does that? The kind of preaching that does that is the kind of preaching that Paul the Apostle commends in his first letter to the Corinthians. In chapter 2 of that letter, Paul describes his own preaching as a determination to know nothing among the people of God other than Christ and Him crucified. He didn't preach the vain and spiritually empty philosophies of this world. He didn't use the methods and the techniques of the world's orators and the masters of rhetoric of the Greco-Roman world. He preached in weakness and in fear and in much trembling so that you would look at Him and you would say, This man is not much to look at. He's not even much to hear. But he preached in weakness and in fear, not in the persuasive words of human wisdom, but he preached Christ 
from the scriptures in the demonstration of the spirit and of power in order that the faith of God's people might not rest on the wisdom of men but in the power of God alone. You see, that's why it's so important that preaching needs to be preaching that depends entirely upon God and His Spirit. This morning we want to consider Christ in the preaching of the Word. He Himself is the great theme of the whole Bible. He Himself is the great aim and the focal point of all true preaching. And only as we consider Christ, who He is, and what He's done, and what He's now doing at the Father's right hand as the King of Glory, as we just read from Psalm 24. Only when we consider Christ will we ever begin to be nourished by the sermons we hear on the Lord's Day. So this morning we want to hear and consider Christ. And we'll do so by considering two aspects of Christ's person and work from Colossians 1, verses 15 to 23. We'll consider two things this morning. First, the supremacy of Christ, verses 15 to 18. And second, the sufficiency of Christ, verses 19 to 23. Let's look first at the supremacy of Christ. First thing we want to see this morning is the divine nature of our Redeemer, the only Redeemer. Now in order to understand what Paul is getting at here in verses 15 to 17, we want to look back at verses 1 to 14, the context of the passage. Paul is writing from prison to the church in the city of Colossae. He's heard of the faith of the Colossians. We don't, we don't hear or read that Paul ever ministered personally to that church in Colossae. But he's heard. He's heard of their love for one another. He's heard of their hope. He's, he's heard even in prison. He's heard of their hope of eternal life in Jesus Christ. And so, as a faithful minister of the gospel, Paul encourages them to continue pressing on in Christ and in the hope that is already theirs in him. Did you hear that? The hope that is already theirs in him. He encourages them by sharing with them what he is praying for them. He's praying without ceasing that they will be filled with the knowledge of God and his will. He's praying that being filled with the knowledge of God's will, that they might be enabled and strengthened in Christ to walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing him, being fruitful in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. He doesn't want them to stay where they are. He wants them to increase in the knowledge of God, that they might receive from the Lord the grace to bear witness of Christ. Notice this, in all patience and long-suffering with joy. Long-suffering in the midst of trial and affliction with joy and persecution to come to God's people in this world. And so how does Paul encourage them to live out the knowledge of God and his will as the saints and faithful brethren in Christ or in Colossae? That's how he addressed them in verse 2. Well, he reminds them of the wonder of their redemption in Christ and of the true motive for all Christian living. The true motive for all Christian living. Thankfulness for the deliverance that they have from the power of darkness and into the kingdom of Christ and of the Father's everlasting and incomprehensible love for them in Jesus Christ. That's verses 12 to 14. And so it's only in that context that verses 15 to 17 even begin to make sense. Because in order to really understand our redemption, we need to know our Redeemer. In order to understand our redemption, we need to know our Redeemer. 
children, I'm sure maybe there are some children here that are old enough, at least my children are old enough to, to understand this part of the sermon. I'm sure your parents, I know your parents, and I'm sure the parents of the other children are teaching the shorter catechism or at least the children's catechism. But you know what my favorite question and answer in our catechism is? It's question 20. Question 20. Did God leave all mankind to perish in the estate of sin and misery? And the answer, of course, is God having out of his mere good pleasure from all eternity elected some to everlasting life to enter into a covenant of grace to deliver them out of the estate of sin and misery and to bring them into an estate of salvation by a Redeemer. And then the next question of the Catechism asks this, Who is the Redeemer? of God's elect. And the answer, which is fleshed out for us so fully here in Colossians 1, is simply this. The only Redeemer of God's elect is the Lord Jesus Christ, who being the eternal Son of God, became man and so was and continueth to be both God and man in two distinct natures and one person forever. Here in these verses, we find presented to us exactly the kind of Savior that we need. There's no other. There's no other Savior that can fulfill our need. No other Savior will do because no other Savior can redeem us from the bondage and the misery of our sins or deliver us from the eternal punishment and condemnation that our sins deserve. And He does so in our flesh. That's why we call Him our kinsman redeemer, our elder brother. He comes in our humanity to do for us at the cross, ultimately, what we could not do for ourselves. What does it mean that he, that is Christ, is the image of the invisible God? What well, means what we read in 2 Corinthians chapter 4? That the God who commanded the light to shine in the beginning, meaning at creation, the God who commanded the light to shine in the beginning, now shines the light of the knowledge of his glory in the face of Jesus Christ, who is his image. That word image is the same Greek word from which we get the word icon. Jesus is the icon of God. And we don't want to get the wrong impression about this. We're not talking about Jesus being a statue. We're not talking about Jesus being an icon in the sense that, that uh, some re religions that would go by the name Christian would, would use icons in their worship. We don't, we don't want to get the wrong impression. The word means image or resemblance, but it also means exact representation. Christ is the image of the invisible God. He's the exact representation of the invisible God. And he, he doesn't represent God as a statue would represent God. And this is actually one reason why we ought not to make images of any of the persons of the Godhead. Do you know why? One reason is this. Not only is it a violation of the second commandment according to our confessional standards, but Jesus is the image of the invisible God. There's no other image that you can make that represents God in the way that Jesus does. And so to make any image of God is to dishonor God and to bring God low. That's what an image made by man does. But Jesus is the image of God, the exact image of God. You might be tempted to ask at this point, 
How can there be a visible representation of that which is invisible? You might wonder, is Christ the image of God in the same sense that Adam was? Remember, Adam was called the image of God, and we are made in the image of God. Well, you see, we tend to think in terms of a photo or a, or a painting or a sculpture. And we know that none of these are really identical to what they represent, are they? A photo, for example, is only a two-dimensional representation of something. A sculpture or a statue may re resemble what it represents, but it doesn't partake of its nature and its essence. What we need to understand about Christ is that he is the exact representation of the Father who makes the Father's invisible being and attributes visible to us in our human flesh. That's what Jesus does. He shows us the Father. That's what he said. He said that he was the one who shows us the Father. He's the glory of God in our human nature. If you've seen Christ, if you've seen me, he says, you've seen the Father. Or in the words of the book of Hebrews, he's the brightness of the Father's glory and the express image of his person, who because he partakes of the same nature as the Father, is also the one who upholds all things by the word of his power. That's what it means that in him all things consist. He's holding it all together. So we'll see in a moment. You see, that leads to the next point of the text. Not only is Christ the image of the invisible God, he's the firstborn over all creation. He is the creator, and he's the firstborn over all creation. Just so we don't deny what Scripture has already affirmed, that Christ partakes of the same nature as the Father, and together with the Father is to be worshipped and to, to be glorified as God, we're told what it means that Christ is the firstborn over all creation. The scripture doesn't leave us guessing what that means. It doesn't mean that he's the first creation of God. It doesn't mean that. That's an ancient heresy called Arianism. And you find that same heresy repackaged today. Nothing ever fades away. Nothing ever goes away in terms of heresy. Heresy just keeps repeating itself over and over and over again in church history. It's repackaged in certain cults, such as the group that calls itself Jehovah's Witnesses. They are emphatically not witnesses of Jehovah because they emphatically deny that Jesus is Jehovah. As Psalm 24 helps us to see. Jesus is the Redeemer of God's elect. Jesus is the God of the Old Testament. And so the term firstborn actually points to Christ's eternal sonship, his eternal begottenness of the Father. He is the eternal and only begotten of the Father. And so the rest of these verses simply explain what's being said. Christ, as the express image of God, partakes of his nature and his being. And for that reason, he is equal to God. You remember, it's an equality that he did not selfishly grasp, but he, he veiled that in our humanity, so that he came down to us in our mortality in the Incarnation. He didn't become something less than he was. He added something to his divine nature. He took to himself our humanity without becoming something less than he already was. As the Son of God, Christ is the firstborn. He's the heir of all things. That's why all things are to him and for him, you see. All things were created through him and for him. He's the creator of all things and the heir of all things. All things are his great inheritance and belong to him. 
Nothing is excluded. He's the Lord of all things, visible and invisible, of all creatures, of all powers, of all principalities. He's not only the ruler of the kings of the earth, but he rules over angels and demons. And there's no power and no authority anywhere, anywhere, independent of Christ. Now that should comfort your heart. That should encourage you this morning. There's nothing that can happen in this world that's outside of the sovereign power and authority of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's the ruler of all things. In him all things consist. That means that he is the one who holds all things together. Only God can say that of himself. It's an astounding statement. You think of the universe and you think of the modern discoveries of science. And I often will say that we of all people, this generation, of all generations that have ever lived in the history of the world, have more reason to give thanks and to glorify God because of things that we have discovered, because of the things that we have seen. We've only seen them, and we've only discovered them, and we've only been able to know these things because God has given us the ability to see these things and to know these things, and he's teaching us. If we have eyes to see that these things, all these things, these galaxies and the tiniest atoms and molecules are held together by Christ, in Christ, for Christ. It's an astounding statement. That's the meaning of this text. Christ our Lord, your Lord and mine, is Lord of all and Lord over all. And he is in himself all in all. There's one other thing we need to see here. And that appears in verse 18. The relationship of Christ, the Lord of all, to his church, to his bride. And it's really here that the full wonder of the lordship of Christ over all things becomes apparent. Christ is said here to be the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have the preeminence. In other words, there is an inseparable union between the Lord of all things and us, his people, his bride, his church. There's an inseparable spiritual union between the Redeemer and the redeemed. And that connection, that union is so strong that it's still present at death. Another catechism question reminds us that even at death, when our souls and bodies are separated from one another, our bodies are still united to grave, to, to, to Jesus, even while they rest in their graves, as we wait the resurrection. Have you ever thought about that? An inseparable connection. Christ will be holding himself to all of the molecules of your body, even while your body rests in the grave, while your soul is in heaven, waiting for the resurrection. That's an amazing thing to think about, isn't it? There's an inseparable union between the Redeemer and the redeemed. You see, to know Christ as one of his elect, as one purchased by him and for him in his death at the cross, is to know the real significance of his lordship. Because what we read here is precisely what Paul writes also to the church in Ephesus, where he says, And he put all things under his feet, and gave him to be head 
over all things. Now notice this. To the church. All things to the church. Which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. It's all for the church. He's holding it all together for the church, for his own glory, yes. For his own glory as he reveals himself to be the redeemer of God's elect. And as he reveals himself to be the one who is able to bring all things into reconciliation with himself. What does it mean that Christ is the beginning? It means not only that he is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the one who is above all things and before all things, but it means that he, by his death and resurrection, is the beginning of a new creation. He's the beginning of a new creation. He is in himself the inauguration and the guarantee of our inheritance in the new heavens and the new earth. We're united to him, and he's already there, and we are already seated with him in the heavenly places. So that means that our inheritance is guaranteed by the risen one who is at God's right hand, our Redeemer. It means that in him, that is in Christ, the glory of God is most fully and wonderfully revealed. It's in him and him alone. He is the preeminent one. And that word simply means this. He is first. He is the first in order of time. He is the first in order of rank. He is the first in the hearts of his people. Christ is in you, and he ought to be first in your heart, brothers and sisters. The supremacy of Christ over all has vast implications for us. Children, it has vast implications for you. That Christ is first should mean to you that even as a little child, Christ is everything. Christ is my Lord and my God. And I will live my life and every moment of it for Christ by the grace of Christ. It's sometimes said that if Christ is not Lord of all, then he's not Lord at all. But do we live as if Christ is Lord of all, brothers and sisters? Do we live that way? In the, in the daily routines of life, do we live as if he's Lord of all? Do I live as if he's Lord of all when I'm tempted to frustration and an outburst? Because things aren't going the way that I would like them to go. Am I living as if Christ is first and as if he is Lord of time and he can determine what happens each moment of my day in this world? Is he Lord of our worship on his day, which is the first, the preeminent day of the week? Is he Lord of our time, our priorities, our commitments, our affections, our schedules, our work and recreation, what we do with our money? Is he first? in your life. What we do with all these things reveals the basic disposition of our hearts towards Christ and whether we really regard him as preeminent or not. There are corporate implications to the lordship of Christ. If he is reigning as Lord in my heart, his reign will be visible in my love for my brothers and sisters in the body of Christ who are fellow members of that body. My doctrine will come to expression in devotion. It won't be academic head knowledge. It will come to expression in devotion, in a life of devotion, devotion to God and devotion to his church, just to borrow two titles from books by Sinclair Ferguson. If Christ is Lord, he is Lord of all. 
I can trust him to govern the universe and everything in it, including all my little cares and concerns in perfect wisdom, holiness, goodness, and love. And he's so big that your little cares and concerns are to him big cares and big concerns. Because you are his. And because he is your God. He is Lord of all. And since I am not my own, but I've been bought with a price, I can live in wholehearted devotion for the one who has delivered me out of the kingdom of sin and misery, out of the bondage of the devil and his power, and into the kingdom of the Son of the Father's love. Brings us to our second point. The sufficiency of Christ. Verses 19 to 23. It's here in these verses that we come to the heart of what the supremacy of Christ means for us, for you and for me. Look with me at verse 19. For it pleased the Father that in Him, that is in Christ, all the fullness should dwell. Now in order to understand this, we need to understand and know what was happening at Colossae. There were false teachers there who were teaching a message that was deceptively similar to the gospel. The false teachers sounded like Paul. They even used the same words that Paul used. They were using gospel language and gospel terminology. They were using words that sounded familiar. Maybe even the word gospel was being thrown about a lot. Words that sounded true. One of the words the false teachers loved to use was the word fullness. They taught that if you really wanted to experience the Christian life in all its fullness, you needed something more than the gospel. You needed something more than Christ. You needed what might be called today... The full gospel. You don't have the full gospel. You need the full gospel. You need a second blessing. You need a second baptism. A baptism in the Spirit so that you can have the full gospel. You need special knowledge, special revelation. Or gnosis was the word used in those days. A word that became later uh, the term Gnosticism. You needed special revelation that only these teachers could provide. So you had to go to them for this revelation. You needed... Uh, It wasn't enough to have Christ. It wasn't enough to have faith. You needed to add works to your faith. You needed to practice circumcision. You needed to eat certain foods. You needed to observe certain days and seasons. You needed to deny your body certain physical pleasures in order to attain a higher degree of spirituality called asceticism. You needed to study the mystical philosophies of these false teachers. But Paul wants his Colossian brothers and sisters to know the truth. He wants them to know the fullness, the sufficiency they already possess in Christ. They have it now. They don't need more. And so Paul exposes the shallow and the hollow emptiness of this fullness doctrine in a single verse. It pleased the Father that in Him, that is Christ, all the fullness What does that mean? Well, Paul doesn't leave the Colossians or us guessing. He tells us exactly what it means in the very next chapter. Beware lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit according to the tradition of men, according to the basic principles of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. And you, you are complete who is the head of all principality and power. Because he's preeminent, therefore 
He is sufficient. Because He's supreme, He is sufficient. In other words, beware of anyone who comes to you and says you need more than Christ. Beware of anyone who says to you that the gospel is Christ plus something else, something more. And here's why. In Christ dwells all the infinite and everlasting fullness of the triune God. That's the mystery of the Incarnation. As the Apostle John says in his Gospel, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. John 1.14 You see, Paul's real point is to show that all that God had revealed of Himself in the Old Testament, in its tabernacle, in its temple, in all its types and shadows and ceremonies, all of that finds its fullness and its fulfillment in Christ, the only Redeemer of God's elect. Again, in the words of John's Gospel, and of His fullness we have all received, and grace for grace, for the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has seen God, meaning God the Father, at any time, the only begotten Son, who is in the bosom of the Father, He has declared Him. And your translation may actually say, the only begotten God, who is in the bosom of the Father, He has declared Him. He is the image of the invisible God. And in Him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Verses 20 to 23, we see the implications of all this. God in all his fullness was pleased to dwell in Christ as the God-man. For what purpose? We read in verse 20. And by him to reconcile all things to himself, by him, whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of his cross. The incarnation of Christ had cosmic universal effects. The whole creation is affected. The whole creation is being reconciled. The whole creation will ultimately be recreated and renewed. Does it mean that every sinner is reconciled by the blood of Christ's cross? But it means that the cross of Christ and the peace that is begun in the hearts of the redeemed has effects that are already being felt throughout the whole creation. The creation is groaning eagerly awaiting the full redemption of the sons of God, Romans chapter 8. Just as the whole creation fell under the curse when Adam fell, the whole creation is being reconciled to God in Christ so that a new humanity can dwell forever with Him in a new creation. That's what He's doing. That's what He's doing. While the death of Christ had cosmic effects for the whole created universe, it has personal effects for you and for me. That's here in verses 22 and 23. And you, he says, you who once were alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now he has reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and blameless and above reproach in his sight. This is the glory and sufficiency of Christ for us in the gospel, not just for the Colossians, but for you and for me this morning. Are you ever tempted to wonder, how 
can I live this Christian life? How can I walk worthy of my Savior who was so worthy? How can I do this? How can I do this when temptation comes, when frustration comes? How can I do this when it seems as if I have nothing left in me? A mother struggling to raise little children, worn out at the end of the day, struggling. How can I do it? Christ is sufficient. He's sufficient for all your need. You see the wonder of this redemption and this reconciliation? The blood of Christ has made those who were enemies of God to be at peace with Him. No other blood could do this. No other Redeemer could accomplish this. It's where the incarnation and the atonement of Christ are seen to have a single purpose in the mind of God. The reconciliation of all things to God through the God-man Jesus Christ. You and I were at enmity with God. Brothers and sisters, in, in Romans chapter 8, it doesn't say just that we were at enmity with God. It says that the carnal mind is enmity against God. All that we were was against all that God is. That's how far we were fallen from God, and that's how far we've been raised up in our redemption in Jesus Christ. You and I were at enmity with God. We had no hope of peace with Him. We hated God. We were by nature at war with God. But God provided full redemption and full reconciliation for us in the one in whom the fullness of the Godhead dwells bodily. And in the one who absorbed all the fullness of God's wrath against sinners in his own body, in his own flesh, that we might have life and that we might become the dwelling place of God by the Holy Spirit who presents us to God holy and blameless and above reproach in his sight. See, he's doing it all for the church. It's all for the church. And the church is what reveals the glory of his fullness. Here on the Lord's Day, gathered together in a dance hall, and yet in the very presence of the living God as the people of God. You see, we don't see with eyes, we don't see with our natural eyes, but we see with eyes of God. Isn't that the very same language? Very same language that we hear used of Christ's bride, the church. Above reproach in his sight. So Paul says in Ephesians 5, as he explains the, the mystery of Christ's self-giving love for his church, why did Christ lay down his life for the church? That he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word, that he might present her to himself a glorious church, a redeemed church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blood. That's his purpose, to bring us to himself, to reconcile us to himself. And the only way that's possible is that he would make us holy, for he is holy. All this means that Christ himself is our fullness and our sufficiency for the Christian life. You might be tempted to read verse 23 in isolation as if Paul is introducing some sort of conditionality or contingency into the equation of salvation. That's not all what he's doing. 
He's not saying all of this will be yours if you continue in faith. If you remain grounded and steadfast and are not moved away from the hope of the gospel. Rather, he's saying this. If you continue in Christ, if you persevere to the end in him, it will only be because all of your sufficiency and all of your fullness are in him. And you're drawing it out of him. The grounded Christian is the one who is rooted in Christ and in the hope of the gospel, who can't be moved, who can't be shaken by every wind of doctrine or temptation of the flesh. The steadfast Christian is the one who by his union with Christ is immovable and stable in Christ. And none of that is anything that you or I have in ourselves. But Christ is our sufficiency. In Christ we have the fullness of God and the fullness of his grace to meet the fullness of our need and the helplessness of our sinful flesh. Are you reconciled to God this morning? The whole purpose of preaching is that sinners might be reconciled to God through the gospel of Jesus Christ. As Paul says so powerfully in 2 Corinthians 5, God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them, and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. And then he adds this. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ as though God were pleading through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. I implore you this morning. On the basis of Christ's supremacy as Lord of all, be reconciled to God. I implore you on the basis of Christ's sufficiency to redeem and to reconcile all things to himself, be reconciled to God. Cast yourself on him in all his fullness of grace and truth for your redemption and your reconciliation, for your salvation and for your sanctification, and ultimately for your glorification. For all that he is, is your Redeemer and as your God. Amen. Let us pray. O gracious God and Father, we rejoice in Christ who is our reconciliation. We thank you, O God. We've been brought into your kingdom. We've been renewed in him. We've been given everything that we need, that we are complete in Him. Oh, Father, so often we fail to see it. We forget our completeness in Christ. We forget that we have everything that we need to live every moment of the Christian life to the glory of God, by the grace of God, through the Spirit of God. Help us, O oh Lord. Help us not to forget. Help us not to become distracted. Help us not to look to the world for help. Help us to look to the word for help. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.